1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking about science-based solutions to the drought in California. And this is important to every American, and here's why. When California is in drought... We produce 70% of the produce that is that makes up the domestic source of produce in the United States. So when we have drought, we have trouble growing our food, that impacts the entire nation. And so we have three guests today who have a very unique spin on ways that California and other states that are in drought, because we know that California is not the only state that's dealing with drought conditions um, and will be dealing with drought conditions as climate change continues to progress. We have Dr. Joe McBride who is a professor emeritus at UC Berkeley. We have Erica Ross who is a PAE engineers, And we have Mark Heisterkamp who's the vice president of strategic relations for the U.S. Green Building Council. And just recently on March 20th, the U.S. Green building council northern california held its annual water conservation showcase and all three of these folks are going to be talking about what they discussed there and why it's uh you know something that we can all learn from even if we don't live in california i'm going to start with mark Heisterkamp. mark welcome to go green radio i'm so glad to have you with us
2: great thank you Jill. it's a pleasure
1: Well, you know, the Water Conservation Showcase is hosted by your organization, and I'd love for you to talk to us about this annual event. Give us a little bit of its history, who the attendees are, and what are the takeaways from this showcase?
2: Sure. Uh, It's a very exciting event for us, and one where we obviously do focus on water. There's so much conversation in Green Building about energy and other subjects, obviously in California and really everywhere we should be talking far more about water. So this is the 15th year that we've hosted this event in Northern California. The partnership with USGBC, Pacific Gas and Electric, East Bay Municipal Utility District, San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, and AIA Committee on the Environment. So we bring in lots of partners. We work for years on bringing both a consumer and an industri- industry um Event together, So we had 600 folks this year, despite some uh, major tr- public transportation problems that day in um, the city, but we had 600 people. And they do range from architects and engineers and building professionals to the p- general public and consumers that are looking for solutions for their um, water needs, their fixtures, or their um, irrigation systems or solutions to avoid irrigation altogether. So it really ranges in terms of topics. Uh, everything from, you know, Salesforce Tower and its black water, uh, recycled water system uh, to, you know, again, how does that consumer have a better irrigation system that's, you know, weather controlled, smart, and does a better job of using water when only when needed. So we bring together a lot of speakers, um, a lot of types of solutions. I mean, we do talk, it's green building. Uh, in the green building world, we talk about toilets and urinals a lot. Um, there's other aspects of water here, but that certainly is talked about far more than, than in daily life for most people. So our goal with the showcase is to really bring this together, to focus on water, focus deep on that subject, and also to help people understand that water by itself is an issue. Uh, and Jill, you talked about the irrigation, um, and agriculture realities for that, but water is also an energy issue. We use a considerable amount of energy, both to process wastewater, as well as to transport water particularly in California, those are both very big energy users. So it is really a climate change and energy-related issue in addition to being a drought and a water issue.
1: Well said, and and I'm not going to miss that summit next year. That's or the the showcase next year. That is a, an amazing sounding event, and I, I would encourage folks to keep a lookout for that event. That's terrific, Erica. I am so glad to have you on the show. Um, I believe you spoke about the Bullet Center at the Water Conservation Showcase. Uh, from what I understand, it's the first commercial building to achieve the Living Building certification. And before we take a deep dive into the details of the Bullet Center, I'd love for you to talk to us about what the Living Building Certification entails.
3: Yeah, so first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here, Um, and the Living Building Certification is really interesting. It is a very prestigious certification, and the, the whole thought process behind it is instead of trying to minimize the negative impact of the built environment on the surrounding environment. It's trying to actually have a positive impact on its surroundings. Um, And that's achieved through a number of different um, aspects of the building. It's kind of all of the aspects of the building. There's mandatory requirements. um, And you have to achieve it through meeting all of them, uh, of the seven different pedals, and that includes both being net zero energy, net zero water. Uh, it includes the building materials, uh, how you interact with the site, um, and indoor quality. And the other aspect of that is that instead of uh, just having to show through calculations that you think you're going to be able to meet those goals, you actually have to ha- track data
1: for uh, a whole year showing that you have met them. Wow, that's rigorous. And uh, I'm excited to hear more about how the Bullet Center has achieved that. But well, before we go into that, I want to welcome Dr. Joe McBride to the show. I'm so happy to have you on the show, Dr. McBride. Um, welcome. Thank you. You gave a presentation at the Water Conservation Showcase that dealt with the impact of climate change on street trees in California. And there's so much that I want to ask you about this topic, but let's begin with this. Help us understand what aspects of climate change are most likely to impact trees in our cities and, and why. Uh, the,
4: the, the aspects uh, include an increase in temperature, which is going to be felt throughout uh, the state of California, and then decreases in precipitation. The decrease in precipitation will lead to less snowpack in the Sierras in, this, in the wintertime, and that will result in less water for irrigation. Uh, much of our urban landscapes throughout California uh, are kept green uh, by irrigation in the summertime, and the bulk of that water comes from snow belt in the Sierras. So the combination of increasing temperatures and decreasing supplies of water uh, are going to uh, impact our trees.
1: You know, you raise a really interesting point, Dr. McBride, because a lot of people, you know, different states and different regions of the country have different ways of storing water. And in California, one of the primary ways that we store water is with snow. And that's why, you know, even if we get late in the year rains, you know, May or June, if we happen to get any rain in those months, it's not as helpful to us because we don't have the ability to store a lot of that water it runs off into the ocean and so a lot of Californians don't realize this and of course other states don't have a a concept of how this works but if we don't get precipitation in the winter that comes to us in the form of snow we, we really are in a hurt locker when it comes to having water to irrigate um, anything, whether it's urban trees or what have you. So I think it's important for our listeners to understand that, you know, for everybody who's counting on produce or counting for other, you know, other things from California, the services that require water, manufacturing and, and other things that we do here, um, you know, pray for snow <laughs> because that's what we need. That's how it works. Um, Mark, for our listeners who may not be versed in the water components of green building, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we think of green building, we might be thinking of energy issues and what have you. Help us understand the impact that the built environment has on our water supply.
2: Great question. And so really buildings, um, there's the obvious ways we all think about showers, toilets, faucets uh um, that I joked about before, um, but then it's also to Dr. McBride's point around irrigation and what we're doing with the, the plants, the trees, everything immediately around those buildings, um, the public parks, um, and also in buildings really outside of anybody's side of line, other than the folks, um, line of sight, other than the folks running the buildings is cooling tower and process water. So that's really, you know, the water used to heat and cool buildings, which is substantial as well. So we have built, um, USGBC, my organization, runs the lead green building rating system. We do local events like the Conservation Showcase, but what really people know us for is that building certification. And so we built the water section around those key components. How do we minimize? How do we set up a new building to have better infrastructure to minimize the water used for you know, fixtures, irrigation, and cooling tower water? And then on the existing building side, how do we measure that actual performance and award certification to the buildings that are using those well. And so we look at it both on the construction side and the existing building side so that we can recognize um, and create scale. Really, certification is an important piece of this, but what we're really trying to do is create scale in the market so that those solutions can be available not just to large commercial buildings, not just to universities and other kind of bigger institutions, but that we can find them on the shelf um, at, uh, you know, local retailer and be mm-hmm. able to um, have them available for me to purchase and bring home to my house and use here and save water in my home. So we're really looking how do we create those markets um, for all three of those aspects of water use. Not all three are applicable. I don't have a cooling tower in my home, um, <laughs> but you know, I can look at the, the landscape aspects. I can look at the fixture aspects. And we're, as an organization, looking at how can we bring those to scale so that we can use them in all buildings and work towards yes. green buildings for all. Um, so, that's a big focus of our work, and water is a huge piece of what we focus on within the lead rating system.
1: That makes perfect sense. And Erica, speaking of some of the things that Mark was uh, talking about, the things that a, a building can do to minimize its impact on the water supply, talk to us about how the Bullet Center incorporates rainwater, gray water, and composting toilets into the building design.
3: Yeah, so the Bullet Center has a really interesting. Uh, water system. It's designed to be net zero water. So it's going to be collecting all of its wastewater on site, treating it, and then meeting the whole building's potable and non-potable water demands of the building. Um, The first system that does this, it reduces 96% of a typical building's water saving is the composting toilets. This was used for the building because Since it's a a living building challenge, it also wants to be net zero energy, and so composting toilets use very little energy compared to other on-site treatment systems. And this system works by installing toilets that look a lot like a typical toilet you'd see in an office, but instead of using uh, 1.28 gallons per flush, it only uses two tablespoons of water. Whoa. From those toilets, it's routed to these composters that are located in the basement and within 18 to 24 months it creates compost and it's taken off site and it goes through the final stage and it's turned into fertilizer that's used on local crops and so you're able to have significant water savings use minimal energy and you have a great end product from it
1: and we wow, found Erica, through that, is to that is pretty amazing that yeah it's really t- cool I want to give you a chance to go into more detail on this, but we've got to take a quick commercial break. So don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green radio right after this.
0: News. Opinion voice counts call toll-free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 voiceamerica.com take a wild guess how much garbage generated in the united states today is converted into energy is it 26 percent 43 percent or 14 percent
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guests today are Mark Heisterkamp, who is the um, Vice President for Strategic Relations for the U.S. Green Building Council, Dr. Joe McBride, who's a professor emeritus at UC Berkeley, Go Bears, and Erica Ross of PAA Engineers. And right before the break, I had to interrupt Erica, and I want to give her a chance to finish telling us about how the Bullet Center incorporates rainwater and gray water into the building design. She was talking about how they've incorporated composting toilets but Erica go ahead and tell us about how they've incorporated rainwater and gray water into the design.
3: Yeah so to, to reach that net zero water goal for the building um, after composting toilets we have a, a gray water system that collects the gray water from the building and that will be from your sinks in the bathroom your kitchen sink uh, we have some showers in the building so all of that water that's collected and then it is routed to a uh, Constructed wetlands that's located on the third level of the project. And that wetlands actually provides the treatment of the water. And once it's treated, we're not actually reusing the water on site. It's routed to an infiltration planner. So it provides a recharge to the groundwater on the site so that we have minimal impact on that. And that's about 60% of the wastewater is returned to the ecosystem. And then the last system on the building is the rainwater collection system. And the rainwater from the expansive solar array on the roof is collected and routed to a 56,000-gallon cistern in the basement. And then that water is treated through uh, various elements, through ultrafiltration, chlorination, and UV. And then it is pumped to serve all of the fixtures in the building. Uh, Right now, we don't actually have approval for potable water reuse yet. Ah, uh, the building building's been operating for about five years now, and we're still working on the regulatory side of that to get the approval. We're in some testings right now, but right now that system's just feeding the non potable sources on
1: the building. That is amazing. And and just for clarification, where is the Bullet Center located?
3: Oh yeah, thank you. Ah, uh, the Bullet Center is located in Seattle, um, okay. and it was this was a pilot project. It's put um, it was a by the Bullet Foundation. And so they had really aggressive sustainability goals, and the purpose of the project was to really just have an example of how a project could have net zero energy and net zero water and show that it can be done as an office building.
1: Very cool. Dr. McBride, I want to shift to you. Um, some of our listeners may not understand the vital role that urban trees play in creating a sustainable community. Um, And I noticed on your website uh, that you're working on an urban forest master plan for the city of San Francisco. I would love it if you would help us understand what cities must consider when they plant trees in urban areas, and what are some of the services that trees provide in an urban area?
4: Well, uh, I'm not currently working on the San Francisco urban forest plan. That plan was completed a couple of years ago and has now been published. Uh, in terms of the the uh, things that we need to consider in uh, planting trees in urban areas, one, of course, is the adaptability of trees to the urban environment. And I am particularly, particularly concerned at this time uh, that we also think of how the climate is changing and how adaptable trees are that we might plant to the future climate. Uh, trees provide a number of services uh, to urban areas, and if the trees are not going to be able to deal with future climates, these services will not be available. The services include uh, a decrease in temperature, leading to reductions in energy, energy costs for air conditioning in cities. Trees also decrease the stormwater management costs due to the interception of rainfall by the canopies of trees. Trees also decrease the concentration of air pollutants in the air over our cities and they increase the diversity and quality of wildlife habitat. And there's also uh, ample research to suggest that uh, trees in urban areas reduce the stress uh, on people living in the cities.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, I, I want to ask you a follow-on question to that because at the Water Conservation Showcase, you presented a study that assessed the viability of 140 tree species across 16 cities. And you looked at how those species are likely to fare under drought conditions that are expected due to climate change. I would love for you to talk to us about your findings.
4: Uh, okay. Uh, my research was conducted with uh, Igor Lacan, who is with the University of California Cooperative Extension Program. And we found that many of the species uh, <clears throat> will exhibit either reduced growth or mortality in response to the change in climate. And the response of the individual species that we studied is not going to be uniform across California but will be most severe in the Central Valley and in the Empire, Inland Empire region of Southern California. Of the 140 tree species that were included in our study, 83 of these species uh, are not suited for the future climates in uh, particular cities. Examples are species like London plane tree, southern magnolia, cutleaf birch, sweet gum, cowry pear, and redwood. And we have concluded that we should not be planting these trees now in specific cities in California because they either will succumb to the increased temperature and decreased availability of water for irrigation, or they will grow very poorly and really not provide the services we might expect of them.
1: Wow, that's that's a lot for uh, urban planners to start considering. Because when you think about the lifespan of a tree, um, and and how long you expect to receive a return on investment of planting it and irrigating it, um, you know we're already well into the point where uh, those decisions need to be start need to star be meeting, you know, very soon. And urban planners need to shift their thinking about, you know, what they're planting, when they're planting. Mark, I want to go back to you because, you know, you talked about LEED certification, which a lot of people are familiar with um, through the U.S. Green Building Council. But, uh, you know, fairly recently, LEED came out with version four. And I'd like for you to talk to us about how that version differs from earlier versions of LEED certification when it comes to water efficiency.
2: Right. Yes. So version four, as the name implies we've, we've been at this for a number of years, almost two decades now with leads. So we have a lot of experience in the rating system, but more importantly, uh, the industry has advanced. We figured out how to do these things better. We understand better what Dr. McBride was talking about with ecosystem services how can we take that science-based approach and take the technology and and the research that's been done and integrate it into a better system, a better playbook for how people can build buildings or operate buildings. And so from a water perspective, we've we've done that. Some of it is is relatively simple change. It's just how do we get, uh, encourage, incentivize people to put more efficient fixtures in. Um, Obviously, less water flow is, more efficient, and how can we do simple things like that, all the way through to recognizing gray water and black water systems that Erica talked about, or I mentioned in relation to Salesforce Tower in San Francisco, um, and then also how do we build into the, the the sustainable sites or the landscape component some of the aspects, whether it's just as simple as you know less irrigation or xeriscaping, where irrigation is not needed, or better recognizing the ecosystem services of the plants and the trees that we're able to put. So really basing rating system changes around that, and then also coming out with complementary systems. So we've worked hard and now run um, a program called Sites, which is really just for the non-building components. It's really about the, um, the space in between our buildings, whether they're public parks or the landscaped area on corporate campuses. How can we make sure that those aspects are both amazing spaces that are fun to enjoy, but also use our resources appropriately, particularly when it comes to water. So we've built a number of aspects in as we've advanced, uh, the industry has advanced, uh, and vice versa. So we need to keep up and make sure we're incentivizing the broader construction and existing building market to uh, take and, and uh, recognize and adopt these new technologies and solutions on scale.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and let's talk about, you know, Erica, the, the Bullet Center, because you have some data that that kind of speaks to what Mark was mentioning. Help our listeners understand the anticipated water usage of the bullet Center versus the tracked water data and some of the lessons that can be derived from that information.
3: Yeah, so anytime you want to be able to really have water conservation on site, having water metering and monitoring is extremely important because you're able to see your usage patterns, identify problems especially if you have an on-site treatment system, so you can see, make sure it's operating properly. And through our monitoring, we were able to identify issues with our gray water treatment system, and we saw that we had higher coliform levels than we anticipated, so we were able to modify how often our pumps were run. And then with our track data, we were able to see how much domestic water use we have on site and able to see that we're actually using about 1,200 gallons per week, which is 85% less water than a typical office building, which is amazing, and it's actually less than we had designed for for the building, and the biggest discrepancy we found there was that we actually are having about 50% less potable water use than we were anticipating, and that was based off our design assumption for shower use. We have showers within the building, and we had assumed that about 25% of the occupants were going to be showering on site. And we're just not seeing that much use of the showers, so we're having a significantly less potable water used on site.
1: That's remarkable. And and what I love about what you're you're talking about, and this I think is very exciting, um, is that you know you're not just building a building and kind of set it and forget it. Uh, what I love about you know sustainable mindsets when it comes to building design is that, you know, you continue to track and manage and monitor. And, you know, I do a lot of work with schools and I can't help but think that if we were doing this more uh, in some of our schools, the, the learning opportunity for students to see, you know, how a building works and how it could work. And I would love to see more schools getting involved with that. And I know the U.S. Green Building Council has, you know, some outreach. The Center for Green Schools is part of the U.S. Green Building Council, and their their summit's coming up, actually, the beginning of May in Denver, and they're talking about some of these issues, but I find it just incredibly fascinating. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more to talk about with Mark and Dr. McBride and Erica, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And just a quick reminder, Go Green Radio is just one... Component of a much larger program called the Go Green Initiative. Back in 2002, I started this nonprofit organization which is dedicated to doing two things helping schools conserve natural resources for future generations, and secondly, protecting children's health from environmental pollutants. And Go Green Radio is part of the outreach and the education that we do. If you'd like to check out that organization, go to gogreeninitiative.org. We'd love to have you part of that community. Now, back to what we're talking about mark i want to go to you because i think that we may have listeners who think that green building design is just for new construction and i'd love for you to talk to us about how lead certification for existing buildings can help improve the water efficiency of older buildings
2: great question jill and i really do think that um Many people do still think that, and that is our history. We, we started with architects and engineers thinking through how can we design better buildings, and we still do that. But it really, uh, frankly, it misses the point uh, for a, a water and a climate perspective, which is there's only so much we can do with new buildings because most of our buildings are already existing. And how can we make those better? We could do every building net zero, net, net zero energy, net zero water, and make a very, very, very small dent. We need to do that. We absolutely need to do that. And partly, we need to do that so we can apply those technologies, apply those solutions to every single other building. And I loved your comments about uh, the organization's focus on schools. Um, that's a prime example of where we need to focus and make sure if we can scale it so that it works in our schools, which tend to be... Less well funded than we would all hope, we can mm-hmm. make it work anywhere. So I always think of schools as our, 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 you know, kind of barometer of whether we're successful yet in our large scale green building efforts. So we have very much focused on existing buildings. Um, we've built out programs where we can benchmark performance. So we can take any building in the world and compare its water consumption and benchmark that and score that. And we have that platform available for both lead buildings that were designed and constructed to make sure that they're getting their intended outcome, but also for any other type of building. And we do offer that um, very actively and um, without charge to schools as a way to facilitate the greening of the places that our kids spend it um, most of their days and should do most of their learning. So we're very excited to work very closely with a number of school districts that have those same goals. and and comparing them globally to others like them.
1: Mm -hmm. I love the work that you guys are doing there. And, in fact, um, I I work in conjunction with the Center for Green Schools uh, on a lot of projects. Anissa Hemming was actually on Go Green Radio recently. So, um, big fan, big fan. Now, Erica, um, you mentioned, you alluded to some of the regulatory challenges that the Bullet Center faced in becoming a truly net zero water building, I'd like to give you a chance to talk more about that because, uh, you know, that's, that's something that we really need to think about. Um, and when, when buildings are trying to do the right thing and building owners are trying to do the right thing um, and when public policy stands in the way, that, that's an issue. So help us understand those issues.
3: Absolutely. So yeah, just like you're saying, anytime you're doing an innovative design, it's pushing the boundaries, Uh, It has design aspects in it that haven't been done before, so it's really important that the design team and the owner are anticipating regulatory challenges. Bullet Center definitely ran into quite a few. Um, Each of our systems had a different regulatory agency that we needed approval from, and the biggest one that we are still coming up with some roadblocks and hurdles that we have to get past is for the potable water reuse on site. It's a big issue, and the approval actually ended up going all the way up to the federal level for potable water reuse because it was decided that the EPA's Safe Water Drinking Act requirements need to be met, and that ended up making our project have to become its own water district. And that has a number of requirements on its own. You have to have a dedicated trained staff on site. We had to add chlorination to our treatment system. We actually ended up having, since we're collecting the rainwater from the solar panels, we ended up having to replace all the glass on the solar panels to be rated for, for food-safe preparation. So oh a lot of things gosh. that we're learning there, we're currently in testing to try to prove that our water quality meets potable drinking water standards, and it kind of made all these changes so we can become our own water district. So hopefully, fingers crossed, in about a month that we'll be able to do that.
1: Unbelievable! That's quite an undertaking and and quite eye opening, Dr. McBride. I want to shift over to you and um, talk more about uh, the urban tree situation and the study that you presented at the Water Conservation Showcase. Help us understand this term, space for time substitution, and and that approach for evaluating possible climate change effects on urban trees. Okay. Uh,
4: Basically, the method substitutes another location for the analysis of how climate change will impact trees in a given city. Uh, For uh, example, uh, I applied this method by pairing example cities from the 16 climatic regions in California with existing cities that today have the same average July maximum temperature as the example cities are predicted to have in the year 2099. Uh, The average July maximum temperature for Fresno, uh, uh, predicted for Fresno in 2099, is 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Currently, the average maximum July temperature in El Centro, California, is 106 degrees Fahrenheit. El Centro was then chosen as a comparison city to Fresno in other words, the temperature in Fresno in 2099 is predicted to be the same as the temperature today in El Centro. I then conducted a survey to identify street trees in Fresno and compared the results of that survey to a similar survey I conducted in El Centro. I assumed that trees found today in Fresno but not present in El S- Central California Would not be suitable for the future climate in Fresno. This assumption was followed up with interviews by arborists in El Centro and other comparison cities to see if there were reasons other than temperature and irrigation requirements that could account for the absence of particular species in El Centro or other comparison cities.
1: Wow, that's that's a great way to look at it. And and do you believe, based on your findings? that there's a long-term imperative to trial new tree species in cities. And and if you think that's the case, how do you think that could be accomplished?
4: Uh, Yes, I certainly do think that it's a long-term imperative. And I think we need to do uh, some uh, experimental plantings with trees to see if they're uh, going to be suitable. Currently, the U.S. Forest Service has a project in California called Climate Ready Trees in which they have established a number of experimental plots throughout the state to test several tree species for their ability to respond to the changing climate. And I think this program should be copied in uh, many cities in central and southern California to begin to identify those tree species that are suited uh, for climate change.
1: I am really hoping that the League of California Cities is paying attention to this because they have such a great platform for getting this type of information out to cities throughout the state. and And I, I hope that they are paying attention. Maybe we can all. Maybe if some of our listeners have contacts, they can help them uh, get in contact with this podcast and then and then maybe uh, take some action. Mark. Erica helped us understand some of the regulatory challenges that the Bullet Center faced um, in trying to create a net-zero water building. How does the USGBC, US Green Building Council, help solve some of those public policy issues?
2: Great question. Erica had some really good, tangible, leading-edge examples from the Bullet Center of how that how good progress is inhibited by. Uh, regulatory frameworks that haven't kept up. And so a lot of what we do in maintaining both federal and um, state and local relationships across the country is to both create the environment for folks to innovate, whether it's incentives, whether it's um, different levers that policymakers can use to get people to move in this direction, but then also having to come in kind of the side door, if you will, and clear some of these barriers out of the way. Um, and that from a water perspective might be around landscaping requirements for aesthetic reasons. Often towns have certain things that have to be done. Um, you know, and there are good reasons for that, but we have better reasons to change it. And, you know, those aesthetics can be met in different ways than perhaps they intended. Same thing on fixtures where often there's, you know, code and regulatory reasons that certain things need to be done in terms of piping. And, you know, it just hasn't kept up. You know, oftentimes the product manufacturers, the innovators on the architecture and design side are a step or two above, you know, past what's been allowed. And we have to, you know, step in with partners, um, often local partners that know those policymakers very well and see what we can do to clear those obstacles, even if it's on a temporary basis, so that we can have those success stories have a showcase for others to follow their lead and for us to do away with those regulatory barriers uh, for the long term. So it's something we're very active in. It, it's unfortunately reactive. You know, we, we there's so many jurisdictions around the country. You don't know what you're going to run into where, uh, but trying to see some um, themes for that and get ahead of those issues um, so that we can clear the way for these solutions as um, manufacturers, as design teams and building owners um, get more and more innovative and these innovative solutions also get to scale.
1: Mm -hmm. And this is, again, where having this kind of information in front of the League of Cities, uh, Chamber of Commerce, uh, U.S. Conference of Mayors, um, would be so incredibly valuable. Erica, as an engineer, what do you think the greatest opportunities are for California buildings to conserve water, particularly in years of drought?
3: Um, Yeah, I think way you can save the most water is always like on-site tra- on treatment systems because you're able to treat your water to hopefully meet all of your non-potable loads. But as Mark was saying, that existing buildings incorporate so much of this water use. And so low-flow plumbing fixtures, drought-tolerant landscape, they can have significant water savings. And for me, what I'm seeing as the biggest opportunity is exactly what Mark was just talking about, that the the industry is changing by... By having more sample projects of showing that this can be done, we're getting regulatory agencies and owners seeing how important this is. Because water isn't very expensive, so it never was being fully followed through on a lot of projects. And we're starting to see that it's actually something owners want, they're willing to pay for. And San Francisco is actually requiring all new buildings over 250,000 square feet to treat and collect their on-site water to meet their non-potable demands. And so that's just having a huge impact on how many projects are actually implementing these designs now.
1: Love it. And the thing is, you know, we keep hearing from cities and municipalities across the country about the stress that their water infrastructure and their wastewater treatment plants are under. And that is, you know, what you're just talking about is a tremendous help um, in that strained infrastructure and vulnerable infrastructure situation we find ourselves in. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Mark and Erica and Dr. McBride. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%?
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you all tuned in because we've been talking with three phenomenal guests today. Uh, Mark Heisterkamp, who's with the U.S. Green Building Council, Erica Ross, who is with PAE Engineers, and Dr. Joe McBride, a professor emeritus at UC Berkeley. And we've been talking about science-based solutions to deal with water efficiency, and especially one of the big issues that California is constantly concerned about, and that is drought conditions. And there are other states in the U.S. that are dealing with drought conditions, and everything that we're discussing today is perfectly applicable um, anywhere. It just so happens that this uh, water conservation showcase that was put on by the U.S. Green Building Council happened in California, but all of this is replicable elsewhere. Mark, earlier in the show, I asked you what the takeaway is. Uh, you've been doing the Water Conservation Showcase for many years now, but I'm going to ask you, what do you hope that our listeners will take away from this episode of Go Green Radio?
2: Right. Thank you, Jill. It's a, a pleasure to be here with everyone today. I would say the takeaway, certainly we hope people get practical tips for themselves, but I know everyone listening already um cares about these. You wouldn't be listening to the show if it didn't resonate with you. So I would ask you, your takeaway really is show people that you care. When it comes to water, I think people are afraid to make changes. They, they think that you want the, the flower bed out front of the building that takes water to keep looking that nice. They think that you'll be concerned if they go to low flow fixtures. The showerhead arguments around low flow are incredible. Um, and people are just so concerned. So the more they hear from you, That you want solutions that are better, it allows them to feel like it's less of a risk to move in the right direction. So please let your passion about this, your concern about this, known. Ask your kids' school about it. Ask your church. Talk to your gym. Talk to where you go to work every day in the office. You know, make it known and make it. You know, point them to the easy solutions that are out there. USGBC has those solutions. Uh, many other local organizations, often the utilities, the water districts themselves have great solutions and great low-cost, no-cost options. So I think the big challenge here is just making sure that your passion around this is known by others because they may be scared to act even if they know those solutions are out there. So I think that's the takeaway, which is don't be shy. Um, talk about what you care about. Make make sure people, other people take action in the places and in the buildings where you can't personally do it yourself.
1: That's a great piece of advice. Thank you for that, Mark. Now, Erica, many of our listeners are college students, and a lot of them are pursuing engineering degrees. And I'm just curious, at what point did you decide to focus on plumbing and fire protection engineering for sustainable buildings? And do you have any advice for our college students who want to use their engineering degrees for sustainable work, but they really aren't sure where to focus? Yeah,
3: I, I think that's a, a great question, because plumbing engineering isn't a very well-known uh, career path to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, I honestly hadn't heard of it when I was in college. I went to UC Davis for civil engineering, and I kind of fell into this career path. The company I worked for out of college was posted a job listing on the uh, university's site, and we're reaching out to civil engineers because they thought, thought that made Uh, a logical transition from the water side over to plumbing uh, engineering. And it's worked great for me. Um, I decided to give it a shot. And really the sustainability aspect is what has kept me in the field. The plumbing engineering field has changed significantly in the past few years. It's becoming so water conservation focused. It's not code driven anymore. It's what can we do past code. And I would say for anyone who's looking to get into the field, uh for sustainable buildings that can incorporate a number of fields. It's mechanical, electrical and plumbing, uh mechanical, civil and engineering or electrical degrees all would apply for that. They give you the basic training that you need. Um I would really recommend looking for internships while you're in school. Getting that little bit of job training before you you come in after you graduate really shows the company you, you know a little bit of the industry and it can go a long way.
1: That's great advice. Thanks for that, Erica. Dr. McBride, mm-hmm. you know, besides the Water Conservation Showcase, which is an amazing event, but it's kind of a, a, a one-time-per-year gathering, what are some additional ways that you could see that we could foster collaboration between scientists like yourself, urban planners, and local public policymakers?
4: I think that the scientific community should be brought into the design and decision process early on in planning and design. Uh, Up-to-date advice should be sought from the scientific community, and in some cases, on-site experiments uh, should be included as a part of the design solution process.
1: And how do you see that happening? Is there any gathering? Is there any um, institutionalized collaboration that you're seeing at this point?
4: No, I'm not uh, uh, seeing any sort of institutionalized, but uh, I am seeing a, a greater interest on in the part of some agencies on uh, getting scientific uh, information uh, into design projects. I recently worked for the uh, Golden Gate uh, <clears throat> National Recreation Area on a, uh, a proposal for landscaping the top of the tunnels that had been built uh in the Presidio, and they asked me to do some analysis of microclimate that might advise the landscape architects as to plant materials that could be used in that project. And uh, I know of other uh, faculty members who have been brought into sort of the design process to uh, do uh, on-site experiments to help uh, planners and decision-makers with uh, the design process.
1: Mm-hmm. And let's say that we have you know, some, some folks in, in a city government, um, and, and maybe they've never thought of doing this before, and they wanted to engage you know, the scientific community in some of these decisions. Where do you recommend that they start? Where's a good place for them to find people to engage in projects like this?
4: I think probably uh, going to the websites of their local universities or nearby universities, and uh, looking uh, into uh, the faculty in relevant departments such as uh, <clears throat> uh, civil engineering or landscape architecture to identify the expertise and the interest of particular faculty members. And then uh, one can find on their website contact information in terms of email addresses or telephone numbers to contact these people.
1: That's great advice. thanks for that, Dr. McBride. Now, Mark, for our listeners who may want to get involved with the u s. Green Building Council in their area, tell us some of the ways that they can do that. what What steps should they take if they want to get involved with your organization?
2: Great. Thank you, Jill. It's a great great way to round this out from from my perspective. And we're certainly here to help the industry and consumers move towards reducing the environmental impact of our buildings, whether it's water, energy, um better indoor air quality. And so we have local communities across the country. Our Northern California community is the one that hosted the Water Conservation Showcase, but we do things like that in many places across the country. So um, a usgbc.org slash community is where you will find a gateway to where a local presence can be found uh, for wherever you might live. And then we have larger events across the country. You mentioned the Green Schools Conference coming up in May in Denver, That's co-located with Rocky Mountain Green, which is our regional conference, and I'll be there in a couple weeks uh, as well. So we have events like that throughout the country, places to get involved, see solutions, um, take them home, and also get ideas for my previous take action. Take home the ideas that you can ask about for the things that are outside of your control.
1: That's great advice. And actually, make sure that we get a chance to meet because I'll be there in Denver too. So I look forward to I meeting you, that Mark. Might be the case.
2: So excited yep. about
1: that. <laughs> well, thanks to you all for joining us today. Thanks for our listeners for tuning in. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.